Last year, I had an amazing conversation with a guy called Nick DeFell about boarding schools and the traumas that they inflict on children. In that, we talked very much about the process of what goes on at boarding schools. We talked a lot about my own experience, but we also looked at it in terms of the trauma that sits at the center of the psyche, the British psyche, that is. So in this conversation, I wanted to take it more local. I wanted to bring it back here to Australia. And so I had a fantastic conversation with a lady called Christine Jack. Now, Christine has spent 35 years in teacher education and is an education historian. She's even written a book, Recovering from Boarding School Trauma Narratives, which talks about her own experience. So in this conversation, what we did was we really looked at how that whole concept of boarding school came from England into Australia as a colony of the British Empire and, and how that really settled and percolated and the impact that that now has within our, within our own education system and also spreading further out into our governments and stuff like that. Again, it was another great conversation about this tricky, tricky subject of how do you stick privilege and trauma in the same sentence. So enjoy, Christine. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Christine Jack. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, Bryn. Nice to be here. Indeed, indeed. So today's topic of conversation is going to be about boarding schools, but boarding schools in Australia. So last year, I was... Um, very fortunate on several levels to a uh, realize there is such a thing as boarding school syndrome <laughs> and then and then b have a conversation with nick defell about this lucky you. Um, sorry lucky you indeed indeed and um we had quite the conversation about how even at the very basic level how you get to stick the the words privilege and trauma in the same sentence in reference to going to a boarding school um, and that was an extremely well received um conversation because there's not that many out there and it's, and it's one of the episodes that still ticks away week on a weekly basis in terms of the views or the downloads and and it it it, it yeah it, it's very well received but one of the things i'm particularly interested in looking at because in that nick not only talked about the dynamics of it from a psychological level but he also talked about the psycho history of it and then we also started to look at how that sits within um, the, the core of the British psyche, particularly when it's going off and building empires and stuff. So one of the things I was particularly interested in, because obviously I'm here in Australia now where I'm a citizen, is how that's played out here in Australia. And, and we connected up recently and given your background as an educational historian, um, who has some battle scars from this area herself, <laughs> I thought it would be um, a great extension from that um, to actually look at how that's played out in Australia. So I guess, let, let's just start, um, for anyone who's coming into this, by let, let's just recap. What are some of the key 
dynamics in terms of the impact of going to boarding school as as you see it? Well, I think the first thing is the terrible shock. I was sent when I just turned seven. And I think it's the terrible shock because a, a child of seven has no idea, even if they're told about boarding school, which I really wasn't. I didn't know anybody who'd been to boarding school, the shock of actually going there. So I think, first of all, you go into shock when you're a little child. I mean, this is in the 19, 1957 when I went. So I got put on a train and sent off, you know, with a group of children I'd never met before to boarding school, where I, this school where I'd been once in the country, so a couple of hours out. So first of all, shock. Then I think there's terrible grief. Uh, or, well, no, actually, probably before that, there's kind of suddenly a recognition, which I think um, uh, Nick and Joy Chavron, I'm not sure whose term it is, called a, a sort of threshold memory or a realisation of what's happened to you, that, mm. my God, this is where I am, you know? And so a sense almost of captivity, which um, Joy Chavron talks about, and then there's grief then there's the terrible, terrible grief that comes over you, which you usually have to keep hidden to yourself, which uh, yes. I did. You have to cry. I cried in the toilet. I did a lot of that. Mummy, daddy, mummy, daddy, mummy, daddy. And yeah. then, um, then you learn how to cope. You used to go into that toilet and say, this time will pass, this time will pass. It, I often think it's the beginning of my historical consciousness of a sense that this was time, this was a period of life and it would pass, which was pretty mm. insightful for a little kid. Yeah. Um, and then you just learn how to cope and you learn to get by. And as you know, talking to Nick, some people become compliers, some people become um, rebels and some people become crushed. crushed. I, became, I became a re rebel in my, um, in my primary school years. I think I got crushed in secondary school. But what happens really is you shut down because you are where your parents have sent you. I mean, a psychiatrist said to me many years later, why didn't you ask to come home? And I went, oh, never occurred to me that I could. Yes. You, like, who asked to come home? No, um, I didn't realise that option was on the table. Absolutely, never on the table. So you just learn to endure. So you shut down. And by the time I left um, boarding school, just turned 15, I was an, an absolute mess and it had the most terrible long-term consequences for my life. Mm. That's in a summary how I see it. Yeah, I think um, I concur with you. I think the other interesting um, coordinates within the whole um, uh, interaction of it all is that, yeah, there's that separation from the key um, loving, nurturing um sources that are in your life so that is severed and then you are handed over to um a system yeah yeah institution and, an institution you know that's yeah those institutional principles of you know um, time restraints and rules and regulations and you know, at home, you've got everything, not only loving people, hopefully, but you've got your bedroom or you've got your pets or you've got your toys or you can go and lie under your bed or lie on the floor or just you have, have space, space yeah. time out to kind of process life in a funny sort of way. Yeah. And so I know, I know some people say, you know, you're handing yourself over to, uh, you know, parents are handing their kids over to other people to raise. I guess for me, it's more like, you're handing your kids over to an institution yeah. which is being conveyed through other people. It's not like the other people are bringing their 
caring, nurturing side that they might have with their family that they go back to at the end of the day. It's more they are these um, extensions or agents of um, an institution. Oh, absolutely. And I grew up in a convent. So though the teachers are subject to institutional life, big time in a Catholic mm. convent. So the nuns weren't allowed to talk to us except by way of duty. So even if they wanted to offer consolation and care, they weren't allowed to. That was not allowed to because they had to learn not to have um, any close emotional connections, not only to us, but not to each other. You were not allowed to have what were called particular friendships. So it was a pretty emotionally barren place. But of course, there are emotions there. They're just all underground. Indeed. So... Um... <laughs> With that recap, let's let's get into the guts of it from a historical point of view, because as we um, as I discussed with Nick, you know this is a, a very English um, protocol. Let's just call it that for the time being, unless it's a better word. Um, and that this has been in place for you know several hundred years. Uh, it's considered with great prestige uh, and privilege. Um, particularly for those in the somebody the the upper middle and upper class, um, also available to um, you know people of forces and background and things like that. Um, so with that playing out and that firmly embedded, it stands to reason that this would move out to the colonies during the British Empire. So, so. Um, I guess the question is, how has that played out in Australia as you see it from a historical point of view? Well, it, the question is quite, the answer is quite a lengthy one and I have to look at it from two perspectives. Hmm. And the first perspective I want to look at it from is the, um, well, first of all, the fact that these sort of regimes or protocols, as you call them, are carried by people. People hmm. bring them. They don't just, you know, pe people carry these ways ways of operating in the world. So let me talk about two significant people in so, Australian history, Lachlan so, and Macquarie. So I just guess at that point, just so we're clear, so what you're saying is they are they're collective narratives, they're collective memes that we're buying into. Absolutely. And, and significant, uh, that was carried particularly for um, in the in the kind of bodies and memories of the experience of two significant people in Australian history, Lachlan Macquarie, the first governor, and Charles Sturt, the explorer. Right. So when um, Lachlan Macquarie came, he was really committed to education because when he was 14, his father died and his uncle um, sent him to live with a boarding school master. So he had an experience of being a, a boarding school boy at 14, suddenly separated not only from the loss of his father, but then the loss of his family. So that happened at 14. And then he went on and went into the um, uh, Navy, I think, Army Navy, and so lived that kind of institutional life. So he had that experience. And when he came to Australia, he, while he valued education, he, he saw, thought the idea, he developed the idea of, of having um, native institutes for Aboriginal children. So he set those up. And um, 
really wanted the parents to send their kids. And of course, the parents were really interested at first and did send their kids, but then they realized that really the intent was to separate them from their children. And um, actually at one stage, I think Macquarie says he, he built a, um, a fence around the school with sort of openings in the fence so that the parents could gaze upon their children. So they were removed and that, so that's the beginning of the whole removal of Aboriginal children. Now, it was not only Lachlan Macquarie, but also Charles Sturt, the well-known explorer. Now, Charles Sturt was born in Bengal and his father was a judge there. And at five, he was sent back to England and sent to boarding school at Harrow. Right. And he said, as soon as he saw Aboriginal children, they must be removed from their families, all contact with their parents, they must be removed. So you've got the beginning of the boarding school experience of Indigenous people being carried in the consciousness of key players in Australian history, such as um, Macquarie and Sturt. And then, of course, that whole history goes on with the removal of Aboriginal children, which you know so well from, you know, the Royal Commission, et cetera, and the appalling impact on um, impact on them. So that that really um, that really occurred. Um, it was it's a transnational movement and it was carried by people who'd been to boarding school. And the other thing you've got to remember is remember when Aboriginal people were removed um, and put in, you know, in the later period and put into institutions where they were trained to be servants, they were sent back to white families to be nannies, sort of to look after the little children. Now that's what had happened to a lot of the people um, like Sturt. I mean, Sturt, when he was living in Bengal, he would have been looked after by an ayah. He wouldn't have been looked after by his mother. So there, the experience of a lot of well-to-do people was to be brought up by nannies. So, you know, you can remove the Aboriginal children, you can get them away from the influence of their culture, and then you can train them to be nannies. So that continuing of that discourse of children are best reared by people other than their parents. So developing a workforce, shall we say, mm. of girls to look after children. So that's, that's the beginning of that story. And then we've got the other story on the other side of it, where you know people came over from England, not, not um, being transported, but when people started to immigrate, but they came from England with the whole notion of what it means to be successful. And to be successful is to have servants and to go to boarding school. So you see the whole development in the end of the um, 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. You can, I read it in advertisements in papers, these ads for boarding schools, you know, where children are going to be educated, um, you know, uh, in, in fresh climates, you know, away in the country, which of course is what happened in England. So the whole English discourse of you could privilege your child by sending the child away to a country. And you've got to remember there's some truth to it because it's before the beginning of antibiotics. So children did die of nasty things like diphtheria and polio, etc. So there was some probably some merit in, in separating them out of busy cities. Um, but so you get that whole development of the boarding school mentality in the growing middle classes and upper and the upper classes. And in fact, when secondary schools started to be developed here in Australia, there were, pa there were articles in papers often taken from English um, 
papers about why children should be sent to boarding school, because it will toughen them up away from the softening influence of their mothers, not only for boys, for girls, you know, saying if girls stay at home, they'll become selfish and, you know, they'll be indulged. So that whole discourse that, was, that Nick talked about in, uh, in England of uh, the boarding schools, you know, toughen them up, the making of them, as his first book is called. Um, so we get the replication of that in Australia. And of course, it starts to be um, equated with privilege as it was in England. And so you get the whole replication of what happened in England, the transnational movement of it into Australia. The only thing is we don't recognise it here. Mm. There is very little discussion in Australia about boarding school trauma. And um, I, I've written about and believe that part of this is because we're so ashamed of the trauma of the removal of Indigenous children, that to talk about the trauma of privileged children seems, I've said, unseemly and irrelevant. So there's it's an embarrassment. It, isn't it? Sorry? It's hard to place it. it. Well, it is in our context, whereas you don't have that agenda in England. So there's, more, it, there's no competing horrific story um, in, in England. So there, in a way, this kind of more um, freedom to talk about it than there is here. But I do mm. think it needs to be talked about here and I've written about it, as you know. Uh, um, obviously, the way it arose in England is was set in the context of a very old and established um, modern society. Um, but you're taking these things from England and then you're bringing them into this new world of Australia. And, you know, I'm talking about Australia, as we know, it 200 odd years old. Did, is, um, has it, it, has the boarding school system almost been a captured time capsule of what came over at that time that we incur in Australia now? Or has it mutated into something else as well? Do you, do you see where I'm going with that? I think I do. I do you're sort of thinking, has it changed? Well, Has it changed or is it, is it actually that we're looking at a even older version of it because it's been captured in time from then? Do you, do you see what I mean? I know exactly what you're saying, because often with migration that happens, you get caught in the past. Mm. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I certainly think it probably was so in the 50s and 60s um, and perhaps even into the 70s, yes. Um, but I think that there's been attempts, as there have been in England, to um, soften the experience of boarding school, to try and have house mistresses or masters or... Um, to try, and of course, you know, children now can ring up home and they're more likely to see their families. Um, so I, do, I don't think it's a time capsulation, but I think it's still got the same problems hmm. um, in the modern age that it's a separation from family. Um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of country people still send their children to boarding school, not, not only country people, of course, but um, they do. And it's a tradition for them. I know a a girlfriend of mine who was at boarding, my secondary boarding school was quite delighted to tell me recently that her grandchildren have all just come up to the boarding school age and they'll be sent at 12. 
you know, and quite excited because it's almost like a rite of passage. You know, it's, a, it's an initiation. It's ha what happened to all of us. I went and my daughters went and my son went and now their children are going. And that's what we do in our family. And won't that be, won't that be good? Because they're uninformed. I mean, Nick talks about the importance of, you would think they're all going at 12. Well, they're pretty old, you know, that'll be fine. But, you know, some 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds are more vulnerable than others. I have a girlfriend that I went to secondary school who was sent away at 12. It's traumatised her for life. Went. But there's also, and Nick's talked about the loss of um, a kind of growing up in a family where hopefully there's a healthy sexual relationship between the parents. Um, and so sexuality is welcomed because sexuality is not welcomed at boarding school. So again, it goes underground and, and is lived out in ways that are often not healthy at, at all. Um, and you've also got to remember that um, priests were sent away to boarding school at 14. The seminary began at 14 and sexuality was pushed underground there. And that's where you get a lot of the problems associated with the um, abuse of children in, um, in those kinds of settings because, um, because of that experience um, in, in sort of really seminaries for boarding schools where, you know, 14 year olds went. Mm. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've probably got two questions now, if, you know, to, to where we are today. Um, the first one is, how uh, how prevalent is the protocol of sending kids to school in Australia now? I mean, you, you talked about the rural context, but if you know, if we look at Australia as a whole at the moment, you know, is it is it still a widespread practice that is associated with? Um, we don't quite have classes, but we probably have. Something similar. Of course, we have class. Yes, socioeconomic levels. Yeah. Economic caste system. Yes. Exactly. Well, um, in 2016, I think the Financial Review reported that 26,000 children were in boarding school in Australia. Mm. Um, most of them are secondary school, but there's still quite a number where children go as young as nine, and there's I think there's only one school where they go at the age of seven or eight. So we still send children. At a relatively young age, but we certainly send them off um, in secondary in secondary school. I think twenty six thousand is a fair number. Hmm. And what does that represent? I that I'm not good at working out that math. But I mean, the, uh, and we've also, of course, and, and not included in that number is Indigenous children who are sent away. And now, because of the remote settings in Indigenous communities, um, where it's virtually impossible to get a secondary education um, in the, where they live on country. Um, the children are sent away often thousands of miles. Sometimes they get scholarships to um, your more elite schools in Sydney. So they might be in you know, the Northern Territory and they're sent off to Sydney. Um, mm. There is a bit of research being done around it. But you know, Hatch, we, one of the things we know about the boarding school research that's been done by Joy Chavron and Nick, and Nick um, Duffield is that children don't have a language to talk about it. Unless you give somebody the language to understand what's happened to them, they can't talk about it. I mean, you've talked about the fact that it's sort of a new discovery for you because suddenly you, you saw something or read something and you went, ah, 
that and that was the same for me. That's a thing. Yeah. yeah. So you know, even if you're doing that research, oh, it's hard to know whether you're really going to pick up enough um, if you're interviewing kids at boarding school, because do you want to go and you know kind of lead children along by the string to kind of say you know to really teach them about trauma? Well, no. So you're going to have a problem kind of getting drilling down into that research until later, until many years later. And as we know, it usually takes about 20 years for trauma to surface after the yeah. traumatic event. So how prevalent now then, and this, this leads me on to the next sort of series of questions, how prevalent now are people becoming aware of, you talked about 26,000, mm. uh, but if we go back 20 years to the 1980s and before, which is when probably a majority, or 1920s, 1990s, uh, 19, 1980s, 1990s, uh, when that 20 year sort of awakening or understanding of the true impact of it, how prevalent is that now becoming within the Australian society? Oh. Not, not. No. I mean, I, you know, my book is the first book published on a systematic um, exploration of boarding school experience in Australia, you know, mm. theorised. Um, and I did an interview with Julian Morrow, and then they do, did an ABC um, news article. The number of people who found I'm attached to Charles Sturt University, the number of people who found their way to me at Charles Sturt University and told me about their horrific experiences was quite a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, I had an elderly lady who wrote letters to me, you know, about how traumatised she'd been. I had a man in remote um, Queensland somewhere who, I mean, the impact has been shocking for him, including prison. And he said, you know, he's had psychological help for years. And finally, when he read that book, my book, and he could have read any of the books on yeah. You know, boarding school trauma is not particularly mine, but read something about it. He went, oh, my God, that's what happened to me. That explains what happened to me. So I think there are an enormous number of people walking around who just have not really heard and had access to the information that you and I have had access to. So they don't realise it. And sometimes they're in denial. I had a man who um, whose wife thought that he had boarding school trauma. So I sent off Nick's book to him you know the making of the making of them and he read it and sent it back and I thought oh well there you go you know saying it was very interesting and I thought oh well there you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them yeah. drink that's all right and yeah. then he happened to go out with somebody who went to boarding school a man of his age his men are in their 70s and he said to him did you find boarding school to be difficult. And he said, oh, I spent my life in therapy trying to overcome it. Suddenly the gates opened because another man admitted to it. He could now admit it. The book went back <laughs> and he now identifies as a, boarding, as a boarding school survivor. But I'll tell you something, a really interesting story. When I first started doing this research, um, I'd, I'd done research in the 1990s, but the focus wasn't so much on boarding school, but I've written a, a previous book that incorporates some of it. But when I really got serious about boarding school trauma and started writing papers, et cetera, I went to a conference, an educational history conference, and somebody had um, found some archives of a little preparatory school in Chatswood and done a little history on this preparatory school. Anyway, they found an old boy who went to the school and thought, what a good idea, we'll launch the book 
and we'll get this old boy to come out and launch it. Now, this man would have been well into his 80s. So he came out to the lectern to launch this book and he started crying and he couldn't stop. He could not stop howling and they just had to lead him away. And I, I nudged the person next to me and I said, that's what I'm talking about. People just don't, they're so, they, he, I don't think he would have even been able to explain why he was crying. I think it would have taken a long time for him to identify that. Hmm. So, no, I don't think there is discussion of it in Australia. And it's, it's, it's difficult then to, how do I put this? It's difficult then to poke it into a more discussion when, you know, for those who didn't go, cannot understand what it's about. And, and for the majority who are affected, I mean, you know, like Nick, and you mentioned earlier on, there's the three classes and the level of trust and the classes. And the conformist is very much the, the person who's going to not realise and understand the impact on them because they're like, oh, you know, I went, it was a bit tough, it was a bit I didn't enjoy, but look at me, I'm more self-sufficient and, you know, I've travelled the world and look at the things I've done and, you know, the achievement focus uh, that we were talking about. Um, and so if you've got a thing whereby those who didn't go don't understand. And those who even went there don't realise it. It's 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 so difficult, isn't it? You, you you're all you almost get close to worrying, wondering, am I making this stuff up? And then you then you interact with people, and then you're like, no, I'm certainly not. Well, uh, one of my close girlfriends, uh, who the one who was sent away at twelve. Um, who has no doubt that she's been impacted by it and has been, you know, seeing psychiatrists at various times in her life. As, you know, when my book was published, um, Recovering Boarding School Trauma Narratives, I sent her a copy and uh, she was so thrilled to have it, she can't read it. She said, I just can't read it, Chris. I just can't read it. She said, I can't understand how you wrote it. Um, that's how traumatised she is. Now, eventually she may... Uh, she may um, she may read it. I hope she does. But you know, in her own time, my best friend from primary boarding school. As soon as she knew I, she participated in the first book I wrote and did some. Um, inter you know, I interviewed for her that for that quite extensively. After the book was published, she said, "You know, I didn't tell you everything. You know, it was far worse than that. I wanted to protect the nuns." God knows why, but she did. Anyway, when she heard, you know, that I was doing this work, we've almost, we've ceased communication. She doesn't want to know about it. She just said, no, I've recovered from it. No, no. Well, I mean, I don't believe it because I don't, if you're traumatised, and there's no doubt that she was traumatised, you are never recovered. You, um, you, you are working at it to recover. But it's why I called my book Recovering Boarding School Trauma Narratives. You're recovering them. You're not recovered. You're recovering. Always there's something more that has to be done to recognise mm. the impact of it on you and you have to look at that, understand it and assimilate it and come to terms with it. So is there an end point? No, I don't believe there is. No, I, I, think, I, think, that, I think there's a point where you can, come, you can be peaceful about it. 
I feel very peaceful about it. I, um, I'm not angry. I was very angry at 28. I'm 71 now. I was very angry at 28 when it emerged and furious with my, uh, with my parents um, and that anger. And then finally, I sort of packed it away when I was about 31. But I think over my life and being an educationalist and working in developmental psychology as well, and also historical and sociological and understanding contexts of which people live that influence the decisions that you make. I am very, I am very um, oh, more than compassionate, loving towards my parents. You know, my father's dead, but my mum's 100 and still alive. Um, and I understand my dad was sent away to boarding school at seven and said, uh, by the way, on the way out the door, you're adopted. Um, so... And then he didn't come home in the holidays. He was, le he was left at boarding school. And my mother was removed um, because of um, she had two horrible hospital experiences with diphtheria and scarlet fever. And, of course, in those days, you know, you got sent to a hospital ward. Nobody was allowed to see you. Um, and it was traumatising for her. So both my parents had that kind of trauma. And also my mother was born into a house of grief because two of her older siblings had died um, before her. And so, you know, when you start to contextualize things, you, you develop great compassion and understanding, but of course you have to have compassion towards yourself too. You have to be careful you don't overdo the compassion towards other because you have to have compassion towards the very hurt child within yourself and abandoned child, you can't deny that. And I think the more you accept that, the more peaceful you become and more loving towards yourself as well as those around you. Yeah, I think one of the things that's helped me, and it probably came out early, earlier in some of the language that I used when I interjected earlier on, is that it's, it's, it's easy to blame your parents, to blame a person. Yet it is a collective narrative, it's a collective imaginary, a meme that exists, that people that consumes people. And it's difficult to get it's easy to get angry with a person. It's difficult to get angry with a meme. It's difficult to actually um, for, forgive a meme or, or any of the usual grief process that one has to go through when you're talking about something that's not necessarily physical. I mean, yeah, you know, this this big, I went to this school with big red bricks and, and all of that, and that that is the physical manifestation of this institution. But the institution itself doesn't, you know, it, it just exists in, in the heads of people, really, uh, and, and comes out. And so I think that delineation has been super helpful for me because then I can look upon things compassionately to myself, but then more importantly to my mother and father and, and to the other mother and fathers who sent their kids at the same time that I was there. Uh, and to the other kids that were there who that sometimes were pretty wanky to me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, you put a group of kids together. I mean, Lord of the Flies, it could be Lord oh, of the yeah. Flies almost. Um, yeah, I, I. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's um. It's it's a tricky journey. Just on the anger thing, one of the things that's important to know about anger is it's a secondary emotion. 
Anger covers up our, our, our intense feelings of loneliness, despair, vulnerability, etc. So um, anger is can kind of an easy place to be in because yes. it's, it's energy. It gives you energy and you can direct that out at somebody. Mm. But it covers up those awful feelings of abandonment and despair and inadequacy, etc. And they are so hard to face and swallow and shame, you know, all those things. So it's so much easier to be angry than to face our own vulnerable selves. Yeah, wounded, hurt self. Yeah. Um, if we go out to, because one of the things I found interesting talking to Nick and I'd be interested to talk about an Australian context is, is that he pointed out that, you know, many, many of the people that uphold the institutions of, of governance within England went through this experience. And so therefore, this isn't just kids going to school. It's then these behaviours playing out at a national systematic influencing level. Is that the same here? Well, I mean, there, I think really what you're talking, you're talking really about intergenerational patterns where, um, you know, I'm a talking lot about those that are in the higher offices of government and prime Well, there are some here. I mean, uh, Malcolm Turnbull went to boarding school, had a terrible time, um, was really um, picked on there. I often wonder whether that's why he found it hard to stand up to the right, but who knows? Um, but he certainly did. But you've also got to remember that um, a number of people in power, not everybody, um, but a lot of people in power um, went to elite schools, not necessarily as boarders, but it's all part of the same, um, isn't it? You know, it's the same ilk, exactly. So it is part of that. And boarding is just, oh, yes, well, there were boarders. There were boarders there and people went to boarding school. So they just kind of they can't get their minds around it, I don't think. So I do think that that's there. And also, I think, you know, Morrison didn't go to an elite school, uh, to, a, you know, a private fee-paying boarding school, but I think he went to an elite um, government school and they, they almost seek to replicate, to, you know, to replicate yeah. the, elite, the elite schools. So the kind of discourses around what's called elite education, they, uh, they're, they're alive and well in the Australian environment and mm. certainly alive and well in, um, in those, the kind of ruling classes, the successful classes in our, um, in our society. Hmm. Hmm. And, and I guess, you know, use the word elite education who, given the fact that we live in a, you know, economically driven, uh, economic rationale driven, almost like caste system. Yeah. Um, it's little wonder that as we look upon our child, we, knowing what we know about the world that they're going to go into, that anything that offers the opportunity for them to get, a, get ahead, Absolutely. get up, get ahead, yes. privilege, bang, off you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly it. And, and that's why it's understandable in a way, isn't it? Except people don't read the research, you know, that shows that, you know, your educational success is more tied to your parents' level of education than the school you go to. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go to schools that are terrible and have terrible teachers, 
But hopefully if you've got an educated parent, they'll go, whoops, wrong school, wrong teacher, and move the child somewhere else. Um, so um, yeah, you know, it, the schools don't necessarily guarantee educational success. And I bet you know, and I know, a lot of people have been to these schools who have not been successful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, where it was a bit of a disaster for them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and their parents paid all that money for that. No guarantee. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what does, um, what is required here? Well, um, I, I'd love to say that boarding schools should be closed down. Um, I, I'm really um, pretty much against them. On, on the other hand, there are some children where their home situation is so appalling that they have found going to school better than being at home. A, a woman I interviewed um, for my first book, um, Growing Good Catholic Girls, she, um, her parents were very social. And so she went, when she went to boarding school as a little child, I think she was only four when she went to boarding school. Um, the nuns really, cause she was so little, they kind of took her under their wing and gave her a lot of tension because she was little. And it was in the early days of this little convent. So she laughed at there. So she stayed. She became a nun and stayed there. And she was still at the school where she went as a child. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't know that that's a good thing or not. I mean, just yeah. I suspect it's problematic on one level. But, um, you know, there are places, there are parents. But, I mean, I, I guess it's a bit like removing children. You know, we've got children who are in appalling situations and we talk about the removal of kids. You know, we should be removing kids. And I'm sure we should be removing some kids so they don't get died, don't die or get abused or whatever. But we know that the best thing to do is to wrap services around people, you know, so that you, you know, you really um, help people to become better parents. I mean, we know that practically everybody who goes through school is going to be a parent. Most people, you know, probably that the numbers are going down now than that they used to, but. Do we really educate? We know a lot about how to bring children up and we don't teach it in schools. Now, I think yeah. that's a real lack. Um, I think there needs to be a tremendous amount of education um, given to uh, young people about, um, uh, about uh, parenting. But then, of course, I suppose the horror is that uh, what if you start teaching kids that, they'll suddenly realise that their parents are not doing such a great job and that can be problematic in itself. Hmm. So I guess probably it's really educating people when they have children and there are agencies trying to do that but we kind of assume that it's intuitive oh you know we know how you know everybody it's it's natural how you bring up kids well it's not it's not we mm. have some good ways of interacting with children usually and some poor ways it's like our communication patterns some of them are good and some of them are jolly awful and we need to learn better ways of communicating same with being parents mm. So yeah, it's not an it's not an easy answer, Brian. No, it's not. But you can, and also when you think of indigenous kids in remote settings, I mean they need to be educated. Their parents want them to be educated. They're committed to education, but it's tough, you know, to f try and educate. I think they need to have schools at least that are closer to home, so that the children can go home much more regularly and are growing up in an environment that's more attuned with. Um, their own culture. Hmm. 
I think for me, one of the interesting parts is that it it demonstrates that this almost like rational, unconnected approach um, has significant impacts that lead you to the conclusion that it, it doesn't actually work and that we are a lot more human than we realize and that we need things like connection and safety and place um, and, and a, a loving support network around us and that in the absence of that um, very significant negative health impacts occur whether that health is physical mental emotional and so in that recognition we can just go a bit more easier well, I mean, I think, you know, part of our, our problem, I think you hit it on the head recently where you said that, you know, parents want their best opportunity for their kids in a, you know, a, a kind of uh, economically driven society where we only measure it in terms of economic success, not in terms of um, quality of life. Um, you know, it's, it, you can see the trap for parents mm. wanting to send their children there and the, the whole of the environment is geared towards that. Um, and I think, you know, we, I think they call it the, the triple line, the bottom line, where we need to look more at, at measures of quality of life um, in, in society, but, uh, but we, we don't do that. We, we just deny that part of ourselves, which is, you know, I think why we get in such a mess, you know, of not being able to get on with other countries, get on with other cultures, get on with people who are different from from ourselves, being able to accept other people's stories and, and being able to understand that people have very diverse experience and that there's a wonder in entering into people's diverse experience. I mean, if you sit and listen properly to somebody talk about something that's important to them, you'll really like them after a while because you'll get, even if you didn't like them before, because you'll get such insight into them as a person and you develop compassion for them as a person. Mm. But um, we're often so busy talking about our successes, aren't we? Yeah, or talking about meaningless shit with the greatest respect. Oh yeah, yeah, meaningless shit. No, not that's, nothing that's real and certainly nothing that makes you vulnerable. Yes. I mean, you know, I grew up in, in a school and a family where thou shalt not be vulnerable. You know, that's not what we were allowed to be. And that's, yeah. that's, you know, it was, they weren't alone. It was what people did in those days. You know, they just didn't talk about feelings. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I delved back into what actually, what are the dynamics around vulnerability? And one of the things I, I sat with and, and, and I read about this was that vulnerability is where you're putting something out and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. It could go one way or the other. And interestingly, you back to some of the other coordinates of um, schooling, let alone boarding school experience, where it's mm -hmm. you know, the major focus is being driven to being right. You know, you're correct in scores, you're correct in everything that you do, and you're marked on the level of correctness. So correctness is the thing. Um, that you're driven towards and with correctness, 
you know, a sense of certainty and, and stuff like that. So it's a little wonder, you know, how often would we put down in a math class, or I think the answer might be 72. I'm not sure, but I'll just stick it out there and see what happens. No, you do the workings, you put it in and you go, right, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's going to be right. And you get the tick and you're off. And so the concept of vulnerability, of, of venturing into the unknown, where you don't know whether it's going to be correct or not. And, and we're talking about feelings. So there is no correct, and there is no incorrect, although you will find out what's socially incorrect um, from time to time. So yes, this whole concept of being vulnerable, even just spending some time understanding the coordinates of that is just a complete antithesis to school, let alone boarding school. I tell you, my daughter is an expert teacher. You know, there's a, a category in New South Wales of expert teachers who work with other teachers to develop their capacity. And she works at one of the most underprivileged schools in Sydney. And there's, you know, we know that if you are able to reflect on your mistakes, you learn from it. You know, yes. you really learn more from your mistakes than, than getting things right. And she teaches these little children that when they make a mistake, their brain grows so that when she's in with these little kids and they make a mistake, they go, oh, oh miss, my brain just grew. <laughs> so she's actually teaching them to have a go at something and make a mistake is actually an empowering thing to do. Not just coming up with silly answers, but trying to think about it and saying, you know, I think the answer might be 72. And the teacher saying, well, I know you've thought about it a lot, but let's explore how you got to that and let's look at other ways because it's not right, but let's see how you might have got there. You know, the, the child realising, I'm going to learn something from this mistake that I just made. So um, you can teach children that mistakes are really valuable and those mm. kids out near Penrith are learning that. Awesome. Awesome. How is it... Um, it's a question I like to ask us at the moment is... How is it being Christine who knows and feels this stuff and looks into the world and still seeing it occur? Oh, uh, well, it makes me sad. You know, I, um, I, I suppose it's why I keep on doing what I'm doing. I keep on writing, doing interviews, um, talking to people. I try to talk about real things. I mean, I have a son who has autism and schizophrenia. Um, and um, in fact, I've just been through the most appalling 10 days where he had a full blown paranoid attack. It was really awful. Um, we've got him stable again, but uh, it was really scary and exhausting. And I ended up breaking my foot as a result of it, I think because I was just so stressed. Um, but, you know, I worked in the area of disability for quite a bit. And so I'm really, uh, you know, I, I, I say to people quite openly that I have a child who has this kind of issue rather than hiding it. And it's really interesting when I talk to people, they go, oh, actually, uh, my cousin has that. Or I have a daughter who has problems with mental illness, etc." So the mm -hmm. more you talk about real things, the more I, mean, I it's just like a ripple. I guess you just have to be positive and see you know, you're putting, you're putting ripples out into the environment. And yeah. if, if we all, like you are doing, work on talking about real things and putting those ripples out, it does have some sort of impact. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's between, it's that place between hope and despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's easy to be um, 
mindlessly hopeful. Yes. Or, or, to, or to be just bad. And it, yeah, it's that. Well, yeah, even like this, you know, there was there was this conversation. There was there was so much interest in in the conversation with Nick. Yeah. Then to actually bring it here, so it's not just that thing that happens over there. Uh, this happens here as well, and you know this conversation that we've opened up a space for and then recorded will now sit here and then that will have ripples no yeah exactly exactly hmm so the last question i ask most of my guests all my guests is um it's a reflective question which i quite enjoy so it's a reflective hypothetical question is um if i could just slow everyone down mm. Uh, and that's everybody, right? Uh, for five or ten minutes, and I could let Christine upload a question into the collective consciousness. So everybody just chilled out for five or ten minutes and thought about it. What would that be? Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm committed to to growth, psychological growth. Um, I think it's um, it's an exciting place to painful, difficult, challenging place to work with. But I think once you start on that path, you can't turn back. I think Scott Beck, Peck wrote a wonderful book called The Road Less Traveled. That won't, don't push somebody onto that path because once they go, there's no turning back. Uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I think I would say, where are you most wounded? Mm. Because where you're most wounded, where do you hurt the most? Uh, I mean, psychologically, where is the place that causes you the most pain? And that is probably the place that um, where you have the most growth. Mm. Yeah, I can I feel like that, that place in myself. Yeah. Yes. I, I like that. Where are you most wounded? Because that's also the place where you're most bleeding on all those around <laughs> Yes, where you can be hurting people um, un unintentionally, but also you have the opportunity to, sh to show how messy you are so that other people can be messy too. I'm not entirely messy. I have a lot of really good things about me and, and I need to celebrate that. But I also have messiness too. And yeah. though, you know, and, and we, you know, that's somebody taught me that um, community is built on shared vulnerability, you know, so that when we share our vulnerability, uh, we feel so much closer to people. We talk mm. about barriers. So the woundedness is a place of growth. I like that. Mm. Um, this has been awesome to talk about this again. Um, yeah, the the previous conversation with Nick were, was great and challenging for me personally. Anybody who's watched it will realise there was a whole lot of me in there, but um, more than there normally is in a, one of my podcasts. Um, but yeah, to actually bring this and contextualise it in Australia and that, to see that it is a live issue, I I it, it for me it didn't take great it didn't take a number of steps of logic and rationality to realize oh well if this happened there this has got to happen here mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it, it's still interesting to try and 
uh, I think I think in England it was easy to spot other people. Here it's um, I think I'm yet to be attuned to that, but they they're obviously very present. Um, but it's a very real issue, and you know, g- given that part of part of the drive behind these conversations is to open up a space so people can consider things, so they can live more consciously and move with ease and grace, and have more meaning in their life. I think um, there's a large pool. There will most likely be a large pool of people who don't quite understand why that ease and grace is not there for them. Yes. And I hope that this conversation serves as a gateway towards that. Well, I think you're doing marvellous work and I really celebrate what you're doing, Bryn. Thank you very much. If people want to reach out and connect, how can they do that? Uh, well, you can find me at Charles Sturt University. Just Google Christine Trimmingham Jack because I publish under Trimmingham Jack, Christine Trimmingham Jack. And uh, just look for me at Charles Sturt Uni and you'll find your way to my email address. Excellent. Hmm. Christine, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Bye.